born to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So I'm going to uh, start out with a little bit of a, of a picture. I, this is before there was an internet, probably like back in the age of nine, so I'm not sure if I read this like in Peter's Digest or like whatever the equivalent of the internet was in those days. Uh, it was a story of a little boy, and somebody asked him, well, what is faith? Uh, and he said, well, faith is believing something that you know isn't true. Think about that, though. I think that is the way a lot of Christians think about faith. It's believing something that isn't actually true. You just sort of gin up enough sort of uh, emotions or feelings to, to believe that anyway. Um, that kind of thinking would have been foreign to the early church, to the church in the first century, like what um, Peter is writing uh, in front of us here. Uh, it would have not at all been their concept of faith at all. Their concept of faith would have been very much connected to the kind of things that Peter says here. Uh, he's talking about being eyewitnesses to an event. Uh, and so the apostles walked with Jesus for several years. Uh, they saw him do amazing things like walking on the water and so on. Peter uh, relays the story, I'll come back to the story that he's talking about in just a little bit. And that's basically a constant theme that you see throughout the New Testament. I put in your additional scriptures a couple of things, which I'm not going to uh, read it like. But if you look in your insert there with the additional scripture, First uh, John, the first letter that we got from the Apostle John, who also uh, was with Jesus, uh, uses all kinds of language of touching and tasting what taste of Jesus. Uh, touching, seeing, and hearing, right? The five senses, it says, that which we heard, that which we have seen, that which we looked upon, that which we touched with our hands, that is what we testify to you. You see that word there, testify. Uh, the same thing as what uh, Peter says here, when he says that we are making known to you, or we're testifying to you, the things that we really saw. And so the early church, when they went to people and talked about becoming Christians, they didn't go uh, with the approach of saying, this is just a really nice story. Because it's such a nice story, you should believe it. They really went saying, we actually saw these things really happen. Uh, and we are coming to you, giving you testimony that this is eyewitness testimony. We actually saw this. Uh, and if you look at it again, I'm going to read it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul does a similar thing. He recounts all kinds of eyewitness testimony. He talks about 500 people seeing Jesus at one time. He talks about... Uh, you know, numerous people, uh, the apostles and so on, seeing Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, and so there is this, uh, what I would call, and I think I put it in the notes there, um, actually there's a typo in the notes. I had to figure out what, it, you know, with autocorrect sometimes it changes it so much that you can't really figure out what it was originally. So it says a process of signing testimony. Uh, that should be weighing testimony. Uh, so that when we think about how we know things, uh, people tell us stuff. And one of the first things that we have to do is decide
saying. This is really true stuff. This is really stuff that we saw. And it's amazing, and that's why we're going out of our way to tell you these things, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible and amazing thing uh, that we bring to you. Now, some people, if you've read your Bible, may have a different view of faith. So some people may say, well, wait a minute, um, Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't it say, uh, well, faith is believing in things that are unseen, uh, and some of you may remember uh, that passage. Uh, and again, that kind of fits with the little boy that I was talking about uh, at the beginning. A lot of people think, well, what the uh, uh, writer of Hebrews is talking about there is saying, well, it's just believing stuff that you don't know is true. But that's not actually, if you were to go back and look at that chapter in Hebrews, actually uh, what's being said there is that on the basis of knowing God, therefore you trust God with the things that you don't see in the future. So in that chapter 11, there's all these people who have an anchor in believing in God, but they didn't know what was coming next. They didn't know what God was going to bring uh, down the road, and so many of them went to their deaths as martyrs. Uh, many of them went on big trips. Abraham, you know, crossed uh, the continent. Uh, they trusted God because they knew Him, and therefore they trusted Him for the future. And the writer, the writer of Hebrews says, ultimately, they were looking forward to heaven. They were looking forward to that ultimate hope. Uh, when uh, God returns and makes all things new. And so uh, there's a, a, a line from a very famous hymn, which I think is very appropriate, of this kind of uh, knowing and yet also not knowing the future. Uh, and some of you may know this one. Uh, I'm not going to try to sing this. I know who I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted unto him until that day. Right? So... People over a certain age are all not anymore. It's actually a quote of the King James Bible uh, from the Apostle Paul. But let me say that again. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he is able to keep that which I've entrusted to him to the future, till that final day. And so there's an anchor of faith of knowing. Uh, and then the, what we don't know is the future. We know we have a faith, a, a grounded faith in God. Uh, and then from that, we move out and say, therefore, based on what I do know of what he's done in the world and what he's spoken in the Bible, therefore, I can move forward into the things that I don't know, which are coming into the future. Uh, and so the, uh, the Apostle Peter here is basically anchoring this and saying, believe this because it's rational to do so, because here I am and the other apostles are telling you this is really true stuff. Uh, and the way that you should believe this is because you become convinced that we're not lying and we're telling you the truth. As he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. It's really true stuff. Um, now, I'm going to give you like a 90-second uh, Roman tour of philosophy for the last 500 years. Okay. <laughs> um, very quickly, like how did we get to this point that a lot of people in society think that faith is about just believing things that we don't really think are true. Uh, well, I think a lot of it started in the Middle Ages when there was an effort to prove the existence of God like a mathematical theorem. And so you had philosophers who thought they were doing God a great service by saying, well, you know, the Bible is nice, but it really doesn't come to us like an airtight proof. And so we need something more. And we need like a mathematical proof of the existence of God. And so there was a lot of labor and energy spent in coming up with groups. And actually, to this day, many of their arguments are quite good. 
mean, when you listen to these arguments, like, well, that's actually a really good argument. They didn't somehow stop being good arguments uh, in the last few hundred years. But sometime around the 1700s and 1800s, people realized none of them are airtight. Uh, none of them are actually QED, God, and everybody in the world who's rational was asked about the need because this group was so perfect. Uh, and they realized this uh, in Europe, especially uh, in the time of the Enlightenment. And because of that, the church sort of, in some sense, retreated and started to be a byword to say, well, nobody can prove the existence of God, nobody can know, you just have to believe. And that became sort of the type of faith that we have even to this day. Sometimes people call it a leap of faith. Um, but that's not the kind of thing that Peter is talking about here. So by the way, I'm done with the philosophy of right? Okay. Um, Peter is not saying, just on a leap, believe what I'm saying. Uh, but he's saying, basically, we were there. Believe me, as a credible witness, I'm telling you, I'm not lying. I'm not making up a credible device story. It's not a Greek myth. It's not just a nice story. I'm telling you this is actual fact. This is actual stuff that happened. And that was the universal testimony of all of the early church uh, that had been with Jesus. Uh, and so, if you think about it, it's really... I would say rational in the same sense of the way that we think about stuff, uh, normal stuff. If you think about going to the grocery store and you say, well, I think I'm going to go to the grocery store and buy some milk, you don't have to have a mathematical proof to prove that there's milk in the grocery store, right? You don't say, the only way I could ever be willing to go to the grocery store is if I can have a mathematical proof QED milk exists at the store. Right? You just, that's not the way you live in real life, right? You base your belief that there's milk there on prior experience, the testimony, the advertisement, maybe, uh, you know, that, you know, we sell milk, uh, and so on. And you think about things normally that way. And essentially, the Bible comes to us with stories like that, uh, not getting into philosophical proofs, but simply saying, I'm telling you, this really happened. Uh, it's really uh, stuff that happened in our experience. Um, so, uh, I just realized I didn't turn this on recording, so uh, we're getting one that will never be... I'm, I'm, I'm recording on my phone back here. What's that? I'm recording it on my phone back here. I'm recording on my phone, that's great. This doesn't even respond to my touch on the show. Okay. Um, I thought he would do that. <laughs> Okay, so basically what I'm saying is the passage we have in front of us from Peter is typical of scripture in that it's not a philosophical treatise about a bunch of principles. Uh, it's not just a storyline. Uh, it's not just a uh, sort of set of principles, but it is in fact eyewitness testimony. And I would argue that actually the whole Bible comes to us uh, in that way, that the Bible comes to us as really the stories of people saying, I saw, I heard, the Lord spoke to me, and I'm telling you what he said. Uh, or, I talked to somebody who had seen this, and they gave me that testimony, and I'm writing it down now, uh, and so on. Now, secondarily, it's also true that in our lives, we can talk to Christians, and there are Christians who will say, I have testimony. Christ changed my life. Uh, our, things in my life are different now from the way they used to be before I was a Christian. Uh, I, another example, I, I felt the Spirit really moving in my life. Or I prayed and He answered my prayers. 
All of these are confirming testimonies that one could say, uh, but they don't replace the fact that the Bible is founded on the prophets and the apostles, that the Bible is founded on the original sources of people who were really there, heard audible words of God, uh, saw these various things, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and Peter goes out of his way to say this is not a myth. A lot of times people will say, well, the Bible is just like the Greek myths. You know, they had all these myths of the gods flying around in the ancient world, uh, and the Bible is just like that, you know, dying and rising gods and flying gods and so on. And Peter goes out of his way to say, no, it's not like that. I'm telling you, this is real stuff that really happened. Now, um, why did he pick this particular story? Uh, it's, the story that he gives is related in, all, in the Gospels as well. Uh, and uh, that is in your additional scriptures as well. Uh, so just to sort of summarize, at one point in his earthly ministry, uh, Jesus went with uh, three, other, three of the apostles and they climbed up to the top of this mountain. And while they were there, it says Jesus was transfigured. Uh, and we have to use our imagination a little bit uh, as to what that means. Peter gives us uh, some of those words here. Uh, and there's sort of the picture that he was deified. He, you know, as he walked around in normal daily life, he had a body just like ours. And it would not have been shiny. It would not have been a special kind of body. But when they're on the top of the mountain... That is the point at which he actually uh, has, is transfigured and he starts to look you know, amazingly glorified and clouds and whatever you uh, want to put into that picture. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, as Peter says here, this is my beloved God uh, with whom I am well pleased. And then he goes again to emphasize, we heard this very voice uh, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, stressing that this is eyewitness uh, testimony. Um, now, I think one of the reasons why Peter <clears throat> brings up the story here actually connects back to how he started uh, the letter. And um, uh, in, in your additional scripture, unfortunately, it was put in as 1 Peter 1.3. It should have been 2 Peter 1.3. So let me read. This is uh, from an uh, earlier sermon. Uh, let me read uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Peter sort of starting out and he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Uh, so Peter, in the beginning of the letter, is talking about power. And he's saying God called us to his own glory. He called us to follow him. Uh, and a sense to share in his glory together with him. And what he's doing now in this section is he's recalling the one time in his earthly ministry when Jesus sort of was glorified in that amazing holy sense, uh, when he really shook the earth, so to speak, and brought forth his power. Uh, you may remember um, uh, in the Old Testament, um, if you don't remember that, you probably maybe have seen some of these old movies where Moses walks up to the top of the mountain and uh, talks to God. And when he comes back down, his face is glowing uh, because he had been in the presence of God. It's kind of like that kind of experience where they had been face to face, not maybe directly in the presence of God, but much closer. And so the power of God is manifest in a way 
that blows away all of these apostles who were there with him in a way that even other things like walking on water didn't. Uh, because you say, well, walking on water, that's really pretty amazing. Or creating food out of thin air, that's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, and you can talk about all these different rising from the dead. But at this point, the power of Jesus is made manifest to them in a way that just leads them to be dumbfounded. Uh, and so Peter pulls out that story and says, um, this is the kind of power that I'm talking about that is the power that you as a Christian tap into in your life uh, when you come to him. Uh, and so he's saying, remember who Jesus is. Remember, he is not just a good teacher. He's not just uh, some guy who had nice things to say, but he is God in the flesh among us, uh, and he has divine power. And so he has called us to share in that power, which is really uh, quite an amazing thing. Now, moving on in the passage, uh, Peter then goes on uh, to make a connection to the scriptures. The scriptures for Peter at that time would have been what we call the Old Testament, would have been the Jewish scriptures. And Peter uh, connects uh, what he's saying now in verse 19. He says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. And then he goes on to say, No prophecy of Scripture comes about uh, from someone's own interpretation. Um, so essentially he's making the connection to say that the things of the New Testament confirm the things of the Old Testament. And that was something, again, that the early church testified over and over, and it's even in the Nicene Creed, for example, where the phrase, according to the scriptures, is used in a bunch of the ancient creeds. Uh, the idea that when Jesus came, he was fulfilling or completing the things that were talked about in the Old Testament. And so as we uh, come to Jesus, we're not coming to him in a vacuum, but we come in the context of the Old Testament. And so Peter is connecting their experience as apostles with the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and saying, what we're talking to you about is confirming that. It's not something new that's overturning or something that is uh, you know, utterly different, but rather uh, this new testimony, the new experience we have with Jesus, is a confirmation of all of the prophetic words uh, and all of the prophecies uh, in those Old Testament scriptures. Uh, which we have. Well, then he goes on to say, uh, you would do well to pay attention to this word, to the, again, to the scriptures, and he's thinking again specifically the Old Testament. And so he now kind of pivots. And in a way, you could say, from our perspective, we're looking at the apostles and the prophets being presented side by side. In other places in the scripture, I think it's in one of your additional scriptures, uh, Paul talks about the foundation of the church being the word of the apostles and the prophets. And you could say for us, Old Testament and New Testament. And so we have Peter talking about the apostles giving eyewitness testimony as the foundation for the New Testament. And then he says, and the Old Testament is part of the same parcel. Uh, and that too is something that you would do well to pay attention to. And this is something that God has given to us. And once again, notice that he doesn't say, well, this is really good philosophy, and that's why you should believe it. He says, this is testimony of prophets that they heard from God, and they wrote down and said what he told them to say. Uh, and so it's not just, hey, this is a really good idea I had. But the Old Testament, too, is also testimony of people who said, I heard from God, 
and he told me to do this, or I saw these things uh, and I wrote them down. These are direct uh, eyewitness testimony. And so uh, similarly, as he says, we didn't make up cleverly devised myths as apostles. He's saying the prophets of the Old Testament didn't just make it up. Uh, They were led, as he says, when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he says no prophecy of Scripture comes from just somebody's own ideas. Uh, And that word interpretation is kind of a a tricky word uh, in the Greek. Um, One can say exposition would be another way of, of, of translating that. In other words, the prophecies of Scripture are not coming from within the prophet as they just bring it out of themselves. Uh, but rather, it's coming from God, and that's the way that they're reporting it. Um, now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I just want to emphasize the point here that Peter is saying that the Old Testament is inspired by God. This is one of the strongest statements that we have in the Bible about itself to say that this is the Word of God and this is not just the Word of people, uh, that this is uh, God's. Uh, Uh, intervention uh, into this world. And so once again, we have uh, eyewitness testimony, you could say, of people saying, I heard from God. Now, am I going to try to do uh, proving the Bible because the Bible says that it's true, therefore it must be true? That would be kind of a circular reasoning, right? So sometimes people accuse Christians of circular reasoning and say, well, because the Bible says it's the word of God, does that prove that it's the word of God? Um, Well, that would be circular reasoning, um, and that's, I don't think, what the, uh, what the argument is. The argument, rather, is to say the church has always taught from day one that the Bible is inspired by God. It's not some kind of new fundamentalist thing that just came up in the last couple hundred years. Uh, it's not something, sometimes you'll hear on the internet, uh, people say, well, there was no such thing as the Word of God until like 300 years after Christ. The Council of Nicaea, they had some books, and they thought, well, that looks good to me. Let's make that Word of God. That wasn't the way it happened. From day one, you have the church proclaiming this is the word of God. And so they're proclaiming that the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, as he says here, uh, were not produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God. And then they're saying, and then he's saying, and we apostles are also speaking to you as direct witnesses of what God has done uh, and said. And so I think that's really important because um, you may not believe in the Bible, Uh, And that is, again, that process of weighing truth and saying, uh, can I believe this? And I'm not going to really give you a lot of arguments at that point for this. Uh, But the one thing that we do have to uh, accept is that that has been the teaching of the church uh, from day one and from the Jewish rabbis and the the Jewish people before that. Uh, And you can go back in history. There always was a clear understanding that there is word of God and there is everything else. Uh, and, the, and the Jewish rabbis in the time of Peter and the time of the apostles would have had that distinction. They would have said, these are the holy scriptures, and you don't mix them up with other stuff. Uh, and that is the way that the apostles were. And then once the apostles' writings were written down, the church adopted the same attitude about those that they had adopted about the scriptures before that. And so this idea of word of God is, is an ancient idea that is clearly in their minds is not something that just sort of came along later and was invented by a crazy fundamentalist uh, in the United States or something like that. It is clearly taught not only in the scripture itself, but also by other things that you can read from those days. So I'm just going to finish up uh, with some application here. Um, do you treat the Bible 
as a light shining in darkness. This is what Peter says here. He says, you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Uh, do you, in fact, pay attention to it? There was a, I, don't, I can't endorse everything that's on this website, but the Babylon Bee is usually a fun place to go. Uh, and there was an article, it's a humor site, uh, it's not true stuff, but uh, they had a story, and the, the titles are often the best thing about the stories, right? And the title of this one was, Man Prays Intensely to God to Show Him God's Will for His Life with Bible Literally Sitting Three Feet Away. Um, I think a lot of times we, we work that way. We, we kind of want some kind of special revelation from God. We want uh, some kind of, um, you know, something additional. When God has given to us, as we sang earlier, uh, what more does he need to say than he has already said? The Bible is a light shining in darkness for us to use. So I'm just going to finish here with... Uh, Four wrong ways to use the Bible and three right ways to use the Bible. And each is going to be really short. Okay. Uh, one wrong way to use the Bible is as a set of pills. Uh, like uh, just single verses taken out of context like an aspirin. I feel bad. Let me read a Bible verse. Uh, that's not uh, the way the Bible is, wants us to read it. Uh, second one. Uh, as a mystical personal experience just to feel spiritual. Uh, Three, as myth, uh, no concern about whether it's true or not, it's just a nice tradition that makes me feel good. Or, uh, fourth, as a set of uh, philosophical bullet points for winning debates. Okay, these are all ways in which Christians can go wrong in reading scripture. Well, what's the right way then? Uh, First of all, as the factual testimony of people who encountered God directly and wrote down what he told them to write down. Uh, In other words, read it as Peter is saying here, not as cleverly devised myths, but as eyewitness testimony of people who are saying, I'm just doing or writing down what I saw, what I heard, what God told me uh, to write. Uh, Second, uh, read it for the big picture. Uh, Again, not to pull out single bullet points or single uh, proverbs or single rules, but really to read the whole Bible and say, what is the big picture that this is telling me about the whole world. Uh, and what, what do I gather from that? And that can take a long time. As you read the Bible in different parts, you lay parts side by side, and you get to know it. Sometimes it's called worldview. To get God's perspective on the whole flow of human history and our role in it. And finally, um, as having authority over you. I think this is really one of the hardest things for uh, so many of us that we like to skip or reject the parts that we don't like. Uh, we, we want to just sort of go to our favorite passages in the Bible that don't really confront us or don't shake us up and skip over all the uh, other ones in between. Uh, and that's becoming more and more of an issue, but it's always been an issue <clears throat> in the church of people picking their favorite parts uh, and discarding the other parts. Uh, and sometimes you have people who want to whittle down Christianity to sort of this minimal set that we can defend and everything else we need to sort of just uh, uh, not really take too seriously. Um, as we look at the Bible, as we start to get its worldview, we start to say, how does the Bible critique me, not how do I critique the Bible? Uh, and it really comes down to, in the end, again, you know, listening and, and saying, is this really what the Lord the creator of the universe has said to us. That's incredible if it's really true, right? To say that the creator of the universe 
who can create mountains and throw them down, has actually spoken to us. That is mind-blowing, and you really can't be too neutral about that, right? You, you can't say, well, the infinite creator God, who creates everything out of nothing, spoke to people, they wrote it down, but I, I don't think that's particularly interesting. I'm not going to spend much time worrying about that. I mean, that's just not really, if you really believe it is the word of God, then you can't not take it seriously. Uh, Unless it has become for you just a ritual or tradition, and uh, in some sense, you're like that little boy with the faith, well, it's not really true, it's just sort of a nice practice that I do. Uh, and, and Peter and the early church would say, well, then you're really not a believer, because this really is, we're telling you, the word of God, and not just some nice uh, myth uh, for us to feel good. Uh, and so the challenge is, uh, as Peter, I'm going to just leave you with this again. Uh, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts that God has given us his word through the prophets and the apostles to give us a light, not just for interesting facts, but to tell us about what he is like, what he is doing in history, uh, and how to guide us in our paths. Let's pray.